welcome to the Soccer Coaching Podcast, brought to you in association with our friends at Soccer Coach Weekly, reflecting our shared ambition to help coaches have the most effective, enjoyable and successful coaching journey for them and their players. We hope you enjoyed this episode and thanks for listening. Hi Rob, welcome to the Soccer Coaching Podcast. How are you doing? I'm fine, Scott. Been been looking forward to it all day and uh, yeah, nice to nice to meet you, mate. Well, we, it's nice to meet you too. Look, we spoke briefly before we hit the record, but and as always, um, the podcast is only as good as the guests that come on and sharing their you know, experience, stuff like that. So I'm really grateful for your time. And it's your day off, mate. You could have been chilling watching some daytime TV instead of uh, getting ready. This is this. chilling out, mate. This is, yeah. <laughs> yeah Compared this to is. the normal week. Yeah. Yeah, but thank you so much. You're not too far from me, right? You're kind of West London as well. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I'm um, I'm over in Acton. And yeah. the, um, as I say, so yeah, not, not too far from you. I've... Uh, I was born in North London, so I haven't gone too far. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> we yeah, don't do it, miles, us Londoners. Yeah. eight miles, yeah. That's quite a lot yeah, for that's a Londoner. That's real progress, that, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, look, thanks so much. I know we've got some good things to talk about during the next maybe 45 minutes or so, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, but as always, I think you know listeners like to know who they're listening to. So if you don't mind, rub a bit about your background, what it is you were doing and what it is you currently do, if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely, Scott. Well, I mean... Um, I mean, you can probably see how withered I look, but I'm uh, I'm 44 years old, and um, so I'm originally from uh, from Kentish Town, which is which is North London. I don't know. I mean, I know you're sort of North London yourself, Scott. I've got to be a bit careful here because yes. I'm an Arsenal fan. Oh, so. you're all right. you're on you're on safe ground here. You're on safe ground. Yeah, yeah. Safe we, ground. Okay, yeah. that's good. Yeah. I wasn't I wasn't sure if I should mention my team. I don't want people turning off straight away. But, it's a 50 um, 50 chance, use, isn't it? No, you're all right. Absolutely. And, um, yeah, absolutely. we can we can have a moan together about stuff. I don't know. Maybe it's okay. I don't know. I, I, from week to week, it changes, right? So yeah, it fluctuates. I don't know. And Spurs won the league at the weekend, didn't they? Apparently. So. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Put it in the trophy cabinet. Put it in the trophy cabinet. But um, <laughs> yeah, so um, no, I went. Well, I went to a school. I went to um, I went to a, a boys' school, which was supposedly quite a strong sports school. But my experiences didn't really get that. But um, my sport was all kind of outside of school uh, with my older brother, friends. You know, I think in that generation, you know, there was a lot of street sport, which has probably died off. A little bit and it was you know football after school football non-stop and then there was you know the the other sports you know cricket in the streets even a bit of rugby rolling around on the pavement that kind of stuff um and then after, after school i i played non-league football for quite a for quite a while for hendon uh, enfield harrow borough all sort of north london clubs i started coaching when i was sort of you know casually early 20s i was um I did a little bit for Brentford, but that was kind of, I, I was over in West London because I went to Brunel University. So I was playing non-league, but I was doing a sports science degree, uh, Brunel University, which is over in West London. Um, and then when I graduated, I carried on playing non-league for four or five years. And I was doing various jobs. All the time I was, I was involved in football. I was, um, I was working at some development centres for Watford, Northampton Town. I was a, an academy fitness coach at, at QPR, so over in West London again. And I'd say I probably stopped playing seriously, you know, stopped non-league about 29. And at, at that time, I decided to do a PGCE in physical education. I sort of thought, what, what can I do apart from play football? And I'm still PE teaching to this day, um, less and less, but I'm, I'm still doing it. Um, and alongside that, I did um, I did a UEFA, UEFA B licence about four or five years ago. 
I've also done a PGCE in physical education, so which has allowed me to be a, a PE teacher. Um, and I've, I've also been working for, for Chelsea as a foundation coach for about six or seven years. I think I got a little bit bored as a PE teacher, wanted to get more into coaching again. And um, Chelsea were, you know, fortunate enough for me. I got, I got a job there, which I still do part-time part time now. So at this current moment, Scott, I am a long way around of saying it. I, I coach P, I do PE three days a week. Uh, I do some coaching for Chelsea and I've also do some, well, as we might talk of a little bit later, I've written a football coaching book. So keeps me pretty busy on the whole, but that's, that's about it really. It sounds like a good mix of stuff there. With the PGCE then, um, obviously it's qualification. How helpful has that been with regards to coaching? Is there a correlation between being good in the classroom and understanding about pedagogy and how education works to being a good coach? I, yeah, I think, I think there is, Scott. I mean, when I'm, when I'm coaching, I sometimes listen to myself and all I can hear, and I hate it sometimes, all I can hear is the PE teacher's voice, which, which as any PE teacher knows, you probably sound moany and whiny yeah. You know, at the end of a five des- uh, five lesson day where you're just kind of, you've been kind of, you know, tongue-lashed. Yeah. Yeah, oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. So when I coach, I, I can hear that. So that's a little bit of a downside. But I do think one of the things about the PGCE that really stuck with me, I've, I've always been, I think probably as a coach, I've always been quite anxious in the sense that no matter how much experience I get, I still plan, I still plan sessions. Yeah. I'm, I find like winging it more stressful than yeah. planning. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, you always sort of think, oh, I'll just wing this one today. And then you get there and, and like your brain goes, you suddenly think, oh, I can't remember anything. Yeah. So with the PGCE, that was a pretty intense, intense year, Scott. I mean, it was a year, but I mean, every night, it was no escaping three to four hours planning lessons. And what it taught me so much was, and I, that I now probably take for granted a bit of coaching, which is in schools, there's so much going on. It's, it's educational, it's behavior management. There are so many kids. There's so much energy change going around the school. Football's much more controlled. You've got a smaller group of players who generally want to, to be there. Yes. So I don't have to work so hard on the behavior management, you know, line up, do this, do that. So, but what it has given me, I probably do those things without even thinking about it. So when I see some younger coaches, I sometimes feel like saying to them, like, you know, they're not listening to you. You're going to start the activity and they haven't listened to you. So it's just little tricks. Like when I'm coaching kids now, like sometimes they think what you do, I make them sit down, but that's from PE teaching. If kids are standing up, they'll start wandering around, throwing basketballs around and you've given the best explanation in the world. And then you look at it and think, why aren't they doing it? So I think that probably that more sort of, military approach if you like when I coach it's just sort of like I don't have to do it so much but it does mean that you've got a quite a tight control on yeah. the group which helps I think which helps. it's almost those soft skills teaching isn't it and I think sometimes when you're when you've been in teaching for a while you don't realize you're doing it you just do it mm, um, but it's a good exactly point right. it's a good point you make about the fact it's almost not being too teachers though as well isn't it because you don't want to go too teach mode when you're being a coach right because actually the, the kids don't want to be at the school do they the players don't want to be at school they want to feel like they're at school they want to feel like they're, they're being in, in a coaching environment and being supported that way so yeah I, I guess it's getting the balance right it is it is very much it's like I mean last week during um, during the half term I was doing some Chelsea soccer schools 
And I, I had a younger group, and as they, you know, the lovely kid, but you know, it's, you said for the hundredth time, stop kicking the balls around. Somebody's going to get a ball in the face. And what you kind of find is when you're in a secondary school, you may deal with that. I wouldn't say aggressively is the correct word, but you might deal with it in a more Erect. from a disciplinary yeah, yeah. point of view. Whereas if you try and do that in a, in, a, in a coaching environment, the kids are sort of like, why is he talking to me like a PE teacher? Yeah. He's a football coach. And yeah. so it's, it's trying to remember that you're not in school, which yeah. is hard when you're in yeah. school so much. You know? <laughs> um, and not that it really matters, but it's that my interest. What position did you play when you were, when you were doing your football? I, I played in, in centre midfield. Um, if you saw me, I mean, stand up, I'm quite tall. I'm about six foot two. And I think probably the generation, I was about to say we, I'm probably a lot older than Scott, but the generation I grew up, if you were quite tall, you were a centre half or a, or a centre yeah. forward. But if you've ever seen me head a ball, you'd soon realise why I'm not a centre half <laughs> or a centre forward. <laughs> yeah, so it was, you know, centre midfield. Stay through midfield. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Awesome. Well, another question I'd like to ask um, listeners then really before we get into kind of the, 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 the meat of the, the conversation is kind of a bit about their philosophy. And I know it's an open question, a broad question, but just would you be able to kind of give an indication as to how you might describe your philosophy or your, or your I guess, your key principles around coaching? Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's an interesting one, isn't it, Scott? It's like the, the, the coaching the coaching philosophy. I mean, it's sort of, obviously, it's always been there because, you know, for the 40s, 50s, 60s, you know, it, different words are used, aren't they? Methods, yeah. coaching methods or strategies. Um, and I remember sort of doing the UA for B and how you know, coaching philosophy was really like, what's your coaching philosophy? And at first, you can almost feel a little bit taken aback because you're kind of like, oh, I don't know if I've got one. Yeah. But I guess what it means is, you know, as, as, as you put it in a very sort of friendly way, is how do you, how do you, approach, how do you approach it? And, yeah, I, th- I think for me, because I love playing so much, um, and even when I try and play now, I'm all action. I'm, I'm, I'm all that. Well, I try to. I try to. Action, <laughs> I'll ask you really, mates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I probably, I probably feel like I'm running fast, yeah. but I'm, I'm really not. But um, I do really try and demand from players high intensity yeah. and I think that's become very fashionable out of possession you know you talk about the, the pressing and the Geigen pressing that Klopp's got at Liverpool but I really like high intensity in on the ball in, in possession I really like teams who are really quick with the ball um, so I want I want my players to if they've got the ball I'm not saying it's a hot potato get rid of it but I want them to have a real purpose on the ball which is I've got the ball I'm going to take my touches quickly I'm going to play as early as possible. And I always, and, you know, and very much off the ball. You know, every time one of my players has a ball, I'll say to the people supporting, I don't want just one run from you. Because if that, if that first run's not good, I want, you know, trying, you know, when young, when young players, what you realise is, you know, they've got so much energy to burn. Now, I know you can't keep making that intensity of movement for 90 minutes, but young players have got so much energy. They almost make two or three runs. So I really channel that and kind of say, look, every time you're making a move, if you're making one, two options for the person on the ball and another player, he's got 10 or 12 options. So then you can pop the ball around quickly. So I, I really say to kids, look, if you love playing football, that, that comes naturally anyway. You just want to buzz around. So I try and I try and tap into that. And, and also, Scott, it's not, I, you know, I really like honest play. And when I, when I say honest play, I mean, there's twofold. One is honest in the sense that you're making an effort for your teammate. I think there's a lot of, sort of statistical stuff that's used now 
which can be a bit misleading. You know, a player could maybe run 15 kilometers in a match. But, you know, if you jogged around the field for 90 minutes, you might run 15 kilometers. What I mean is making the effort so that you don't stitch your teammate up. It's very easy to suddenly, when you know, you're, if you're about to receive the ball under pressure, to suddenly slow down because you don't want it. So be honest in the sense that you might be putting yourself in a, in a difficult position, but ultimately, you, you know, you're helping, you're helping your team out. And, and also, honestly, I can't stand cheating, Scott. I can't, I can't stand it. Yeah. And, you know, I always think you know, that there's a karma in football, which is the way you play the game. The game will kind of remember it. And so it's almost like, like anything, what you put into it, if you put into it honest play, you know, I, I do think there is some kind of, some kind of karma in that. So I expect, I expect them to play with the good, the good, um, the best interest of football at the front of their mind. I think if they get that at a young age, it helps so much. It really does. How much of particularly younger players, then the way they approach a game with regards to honesty in both aspects, because it's a good point you make there, not just about actually just, you know, being fair on a pitch and doing the right things, but also about how you apply yourself in games and being genuine to your commitment, having that desire to compete in a fair way. How much of that can a coach influence in a good and a bad way? I think, I think they can, I still, I still think they can massively. Um, but I, th- I think sadly it does get harder. I think it, it, it does get harder. I mean, I think almost a certain gamesmanship, cheating, whatever you want to call it, I think people have got a little bit lazy with it. And I think if we are lazy with it, we're going into, you know, we're going into sort of murky waters a little bit. You know, sometimes you watch even the pundits on TV and, you know, it's like what, you know, for example, what is a foul? In my, in my opinion, a foul, if you're about to take a shot and you, somebody makes contact with you in a way that you cannot properly execute the shot, that's a foul. But if somebody makes contact with you and it doesn't have any effect on the outcome, but people say, oh, that's contact. When I see people saying that, I sort of feel like saying, but in the end, that makes fouls meaningless because a foul means you haven't made contact with a ball and you've stopped somebody either crossing properly or shooting properly. And I think, you know, obviously kids watch that and they might see people they respect and then they sort of, you know, and I used to see it in school matches a lot by the, you know, when I, I was doing loads of fixtures five or 10 years ago. And, I, you know, you could see it. Kids would sort of say, oh, but he touched me. And I think in a, in a school environment, I was much hotter on that. I would sort of say, look, you know, don't, don't try that. You know, there was contact there. You know, I'd, I'd sometimes stop the games and say, yeah, but I'll tell you why that wasn't a foul. Because, you know, you fell over because somebody tapped you on the shoulder and you've seen that on TV. So I kind of feel you can, but I think you have to really make it a point, which is players need to know that you really don't like it. If you're sort of, oh, you know, well, whatever, they will just think, oh, the coach will let me get away with it. I think the coach really has to look at that as a big responsibility, which is if you don't want other players to do it to your team, then you have to make sure that your players know you, you don't like it. And I, it's genuine. I don't like it. I, I find it uncomfortable to be around, you know. So, that's yeah. It's, it, Rob. I think that's exactly it. And I think if more coaches had that philosophy, like actually how let's, let's, let's try and create teams that, you know, we'd want to play like against those kind of teams, I think that would be the best way of doing it, wouldn't it? And the, the, the issue, it becomes almost the other way around, where actually when coaches see other coaches doing the, the bad stuff, if you like, and encourage it, and they start doing it as well. And I think, uh, and again, I'm not saying it's everybody, but I coach young ones, so like sevens, eights, nines, and tens, and we see a lot of it, like sevens, eights, nines, yeah. and tens. 
And it doesn't get easy to fix that when they become 11, 12 and 13 year olds. In fact, it becomes harder, you know, because that's mm. what they're used to. And you can't blame the kids at that age, really. It's more usually down to the coaching environments they're in or, or maybe parent, yeah. parental influence. You're right, Scott, because it's, because it's weird. Because when you watch kids, you know, especially young ones play, that their true nature, they're so into the activity. Yeah. They love doing it so much. Their instinct, um, I think, is to keep going and not fall over because all they want is to chase the ball. But what is I've started to notice is, you know, I think the decision to to go down or whatever or or initiate contact, that's that's a thinking decision. And I think as you get older, you're able to think a little bit more on the pitch. I don't think kids really, I think they play by instinct. But if their instinct is to learn that, then I think we've got big problems because I think players, as they get older, they make a conscious decision to do it for whatever reason. Young kids, I don't think instinctively, they can get, you know, you see, sometimes you see some horrendous tackles and they just want to chase the ball again. Of course they do. But if they're learning to go down, I think that's everyone should be pretty disappointed about that. And we should, you know, everyone has to do better because you're just teaching the kids. I don't, I don't think it's going to help. That's, you know, I really don't think it's going to help where football's going, but. It's funny, if you take 14 under 10s and you, you put on an organised game with a ref and parents and all that around watching and stuff like that, and you know, you're going to probably get a kid down every like three or four minutes, you know, and sometimes a few tears mm. and stuff like that. You put 14 kids in a park with no parents around and you let them play. There's no tears. They just get on and they might be the one or two during a, a two hours of play. They get on and do it, don't they? To your point there, exactly. they just resilient. They get on with it. I think sometimes it's the it's the adult influence around it that brings out this other side. And you've got to ask yourself, well, where's that coming from then? Because that, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that's not right. And actually we coach the opposite and make them more resilient and tough and actually there's some good life skill stuff there as well isn't it yeah and also Scott fine I mean imagine you know it's like I mean who's going to want to be a ref <sighs> and then what do we do with grassroots football? yeah who, who, yeah. who would want that to do is that a problem isn't it like, I mean yeah you know. yeah it's not getting any easier yeah. no no. I love the fact that you, you, and I, I know you do A for B, and I know that in lots of coaching courses, and it's not a knock on, on this, but that you get asked to maybe write down your philosophy, and it could be a three page or a three line or stuff like that. But I think as I've learned a bit more about football, I think actually it's, it's a few words usually, isn't it? And with you, you've got high intensity, you've got uh, maybe uh, honesty or integrity. I think these key mm. things, because that doesn't matter what yeah. age group you're coaching or what topic you're covering, these things are just consistent practices in the way you are. And that's why I like to ask that question. And, and, and I love the answers I get back because because they're always a bit different, but it's not about, okay, you know, I want to play a possession-based style of football. That's not a philosophy. It's more about the, the intent behind it and, and a cult, I agree. if you like, isn't it? And that's I it. agree, yeah. Great answers. So if you don't mind then, your influences, you kind of obviously, you've got a good background in sports, multi-sports as a kid, growing up, we all did kind of, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit older than you, so I was there as well. Out, We used to play most of our footballs. Oh, you look about, I you am, look about yeah. 10 years younger. That must, be, that must be the dodgy camera on the... On the <laughs> on the laptop <laughs> the, the heavily filtered camera you know so but obviously you know we get influenced in certain ways don't we and when i think you said into your coaching so if you were looking back on your on your journey and, and kind of how you coach now what would you say would have been some of your influences i mean i i started playing um i, I didn't get any formal coaching till i was about 13 you know I, my dad passed away when i was young and i used to just play with with friends you know i was not i was a pretty good player but there was never anyone who kind of said you know, it's different. there wasn't the internet. Now, even 12-year-old kids, if, say, mum or dad wasn't around, they could find a club much easier. Like, I didn't really, I never even thought about playing for a club. But I went to secondary school and some other boys kind of said, oh, come along and play for our club. And I ended up playing for a team, um, if anyone in North London's listening, we had a very good team called Peckwater Strikers. In Kentish Town, there was a Peckwater estate. I didn't live on the estate. 
Um, but we had some really good players. Um, we had Marlon Harewood, who went on to play for West Ham. Yeah. He, he was, he was a, a Kentish, Kentish town boy. Um, we had a guy called Saji Burton. He went on to play for Crystal Palace. Hayden Fleming, who went on to play for Cardiff. They all played for Peckwater. And we latterly, we later on, we became Camden Youth. So Peckwater became Camden. But we had a coach called uh, Kieran Rafferty. Um, and I met Kieran when I was about 12. And he was really ahead of his time. You know, I think today everybody, you know, tries to play in inverted commas, good football, which is, you know, playing out from the back. And that, that's lovely. That's great. But I think when I started playing in about 1990, I don't really think that was the, the order of the day. I think it was kind of, if you've got somebody big and fast up front, not, yeah, just S- send it, it over the top. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he, he, wasn't, he wasn't at all like that. And I enjoyed playing so much. And it made me realise how much fun football is if you're getting lots of touches of the ball. Because I've played for some teams where you're just, you're just, your job is purely functional. You're occupying a space. You challenge for balls. You, you mark. And I think you get to a point where it's kind of like sort of thinking, is this what football is? This what football is? So, you know, if Kieran ever listens to this, he was, he was a great coach. He really taught technique. He really made football enjoyable. So that gave me a really positive experience. But that, that, but that was also when I was young. That was balanced off by some more negative stuff. I played, I played for London County. Um, that's not London schoolboys. They're the best schoolboys in London. I pl- I wasn't picked up by a club, so I played London County. Um, and my coach there, he had the opposite uh, effect. Um, I won't use the exact term he used for, but it was, you know, it was to suggest uh, the way I played with too many touches on the ball, you know. F- f- I, I, he used another word beginning with F, but let's say he, I, he used to call me a, a, fi- a fiddle merchant where you're fiddling around with all that wasn't the word he used. Yeah, yeah, okay, it, yeah. It, it, yeah. It really stuck with me. It really, it really hurt a little bit. And it was kind of like, I thought the whole idea was to enjoy taking touches on the ball. And after that, I just wanted to get the ball and get it out of my feet and get rid of it playing for that team. So I, I didn't, I didn't enjoy that. And then I sort of moved as into adulthood. I, I had mixed experiences. I had some experiences, professional clubs, I was with Cambridge United for a while. I was with Peterborough United for a while. I played uh, Brunel University, their first team, which was a very good standard. And then I played non-league for about seven or eight years. And with professional football, I was at Peterborough for a while. And we had a coach there who was probably the best technical coach I've, I've ever had. The sessions were so motivational. You know, you could have been out there three or four hours. And the way he set them up, it really made me realise a lot about elite level coaching and how how detailed and how helpful it can be. I had other experiences at clubs where it was much more tough agricultural football, almost like a sort of military feel to it, which is you know dig in, make your tackles, make chat. Didn't didn't suit me at, at all. But I also have to mention one other guy, it's a guy called uh, John Ruin. Now anyone you know again in certain parts of North London, John is a real Mister Football. He's He's more advanced in years now, but John has been involved in so many clubs. And he saw me playing for London. And I remember at the end of the game, he kind of bowled over to me uh, in his very confident way and just kind of said, I like you, you're a good player. And he took me everywhere. He took me to Colchester on trial. He took me to Cardiff on trial. He took me out to a French club, paid for all of it. Such a, such a lovely guy. And I, he was the, the one person I would have done 
anything for on the football pitch. And that taught me a lot about, yeah, the tactical stuff, the technical stuff. But if you really are motivated and you want to do well, I used to see him on the side. And it's almost like, you know, a father figure. Yeah. It's kind of like, I'll, I'll, you know, you'll do anything for him. And that, that had a massive effect on me, which is, I'm not saying you could be everyone's best friend as a coach, but if deep down the players respect you yeah. and like you, I think they'll do a lot. They'll, 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 they'll go beyond themselves. And, and finally, Scott, and I've gone on it, non-league was very, um, I learned a lot about being a cog in the wheel, functional play, you know, second balls, chasing down, you know, I didn't get as much opportunity to play as I'd like. But it taught me a lot about human behaviour. Some of the managers were such colourful characters. You know, the real cliche of non-league managers, you know, some of the hair dryer treatment, yeah. um, you know, just yeah. stuff that you laugh at now. But yeah, no, so all, all kinds of influences, good and bad. But, you know, in the end, I think all good in the end. Well, I was going to say that, Rob. I mean, in the time, no one wants to have bad experiences, do they? You know, and sometimes you don't even know you're going through them at the time so you reflect back later on. Mm. But I do think that that does shape your coaching doesn't it because not yeah, even it knowing what you, how you would like to be known as a coach for the good stuff actually if you've experienced the bad stuff you realize actually how bad it can be right if you've never actually experienced you it you might not you might not know you might know it's not quite right but you still might dip into it because you don't realize how bad it is so with john then rob i'm going to assume well is this the case is it because he believed in you is that why you felt so much he, he had faith in you so you had faith in him is, is, was it that kind of connection um i think i mean john's just um He's just a very helpful, a helpful man. I mean, you know, I, I spoke to him on the phone the other night and he's always saying, oh, I'm not involved in football anymore, which is a complete load of nonsense. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like saying I'm not breathing anymore. It's like every time I speak to him, I say, oh, what have you been up to, John? Oh, I was, uh, I was, I was watching Barnet last night. And I, thought, I said, I thought you weren't interested in football anymore. And he said, well, I've got a player. I've got a player. I think with John, in his blood. he was a PE teacher. He was in his blood. Yeah, he was a PE teacher. And um, he was, he was really, he just loved football. So as well as PE teaching, he was at Tottenham for quite a long time as a scout, you know, picked up players. Um, and he's been, he's been so, so many clubs. But I think with John, he really just liked helping people. And mm -hmm. sport was his thing. And I just think if he took a liking to you, whether as a player, and I, I think something with me, is it was just, you know, we're good mates. Now, he, now he's 30 odd years older than me, but we're, we're very good mates. And I just, I just think he just genuinely cared about me. You know, I think he wanted me to do well and he thought I had enough ability to do it. But, you know, he was always phoning, you know, he was always phoning my mum up and my mum was sort of saying, is that John bloke again? <laughs> and I was saying, you know, and she's going, oh, he's, no, she's saying, oh, you're going to France next week. And I'm like, what, what, what do you mean, mum? He said, he's organised a trial for you out in France. And it was just, I don't know, I, he still does it now. You know, yeah. even with younger players, he still is trying to send them to clubs. One of those guys. Not for any financial yes, yeah. game. But people like that are just absolutely priceless. Yeah, they absolutely are. Absolutely priceless, you know. Well, with the sessions, good and bad, and I know you said like, oh, for you, there was things you enjoyed, obviously working on the Kier and stuff like that, you really liked it, and other coaches maybe not so much. Did you get the sense that was the same across the board? Was that a squad thing, or was it actually, you know, because your, your style of football or your beliefs suited a certain way of playing, then it worked under some, but actually others, it might have been different. Was some was some players enjoyed the functional training stuff and maybe the, the less technical side, or was it? did you get a sense it was pretty much, when it was rubbish, it was rubbish for everyone, and when it was great, it was great for everyone? It's a, it's, a, it's a good question, Scott. I think, I think, you know, obviously when you're young, 
I think functional play, you have to do it in a way that the kids don't realise it's functional play um, because they're just going to think, God, this is boring. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, and, and, I've, and I'm mixed on that because I think sometimes, you know, it's a thing in school as well, like you, kids can't be bored. But it's like, well, being bored is part of life sometimes. Sometimes you learn through repetition. It's and it's not all, yeah, it's not all, oh, that was such amazing fun. But I think when you're a kid, if you're going to do functional stuff, Kieran, Kieran was very technical. But we still, I still understood how, where to move at certain times. But he did it in a way that he, he was just very good at making it, you know, fun and enjoyable. As you get older and you become more aware of your role in a team, I think when you're a kid, you're instinctively quite selfish. You want to get goals and stuff. When you're older, you realise, well, I can't just do that. So it's a very good question. I think all the boys that played for Peckwater and Camden Youth would have been, would have enjoyed it. I mean, I'm, I still speak to some of them now. They would hold Kieran in the highest regard because um, he was a really a good man and a, and a good coach. But as you get older, it's a good question that, you know, with non-league football, and there's nothing wrong with non-league football. It's, there are some great, great players. And the gap between non-league and league one and two, I think is very small now, you know, from the conference. It's very small, some top, top players now. But I don't know if anyone enjoys purely a functional, a functional role. I mean, I've, I, you know, you, you see some games lower down in football and there's some great, possession teams and some and you like anywhere you see some games where it's kind of very much you know minimal touches on the ball and functional I think functional play is more appealing for some I think if you're a striker in a very functional team it suits you because you are the end of the function yeah. Yeah. but if you're in a position where you're serving others i.e. maybe central midfield uh, maybe as a fullback I think your play can become a little bit predictable and as the years go by, maybe you sort of think, but I wanted to take an extra touch there. Yeah. I wanted to take three or four seconds on the ball. And I think you still enjoy the football. I think, you know, it's, um, I do think the style of play is, is important to players. People say, oh, it's what the fans want. You know, but everyone wants to see nice. But as a player, you started playing football. You didn't start playing to mark players and to win flick on. So, you, you know, that's part of football. You played it because you like the feel of the ball. Yeah, so true. And, and you'd like to think, actually, that's the important thing about foundation phase football, where you kind of get on the ball and do lots of different things. And maybe as you go through the age groups and progress, then you find a place that works for you and you, and you buy into that process because you've had the opportunity to do other stuff earlier on. I think the danger exactly. is if you get pigeonholed too early, then you get that drop off maybe under 13s where the kids, you know, they stopped enjoying it because they've kind of done the same thing for six years already, you know, rather yeah, than actually yeah, at 13, yeah. you start doing the same thing. So then by the time you're 20, you're still okay with it because you've, you've kind of grown into what you need to be doing. So the really, the main point of chatting today Rob was to talk about um, your book that you put out um, mm. it's the Soccer Coaches Toolkit and I'm going to guess this is what, a, a bit of just a collaboration of everything you've kind of gone through your own journey up until this point and put into one place is that the background to the book? Yeah pretty much Scott I mean it's um, I think uh, just trying to think if I've got the actual full the actual full title of the book um, well yeah it's, yeah, it's the, the Soccer Coaches Toolkit over 200 activities to inspire and challenge players. That's well, the full title. Well done. That's something yeah, that, well that's, <laughs> that's good. Well, I did start writing seven years ago, so I should I should remember it. But, um, but yeah, no, it's 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 252 activities, and it's I mean, basically, Scott, the way it happened was I think like any coach, um, I was always a piece of paper man, and I all over my flat. 
I've got, you know, diagrams. And, and you know you're about to go for a session. You're thinking, oh, tonight I want to do that possession activity. And you're thinking, where is it? <laughs> and you're going through, and every one, you've got the these notebooks. little yeah. and you're thinking, I can't remember which one it was. And I, in the end, I think, you know, some sessions, I must have written down about 25 times just because I couldn't find that piece of paper. So you're writing the same thing down, and it just became, you know, very time-consuming. So what I thought was I got a massive pile of paper. Every activity I've ever done, I kept them. And I went through them, and I would – I put it all onto a, a, a document on on my laptop. I typed it up, and I did um, a little sort of computerized diagram. And then I would get the piece of paper, tear it up, and throw it away. So gradually, all the paper went. And I saved the document on my USB and all kinds of – but it was really therapeutic to have it like, oh, where's that one – I could find it in 10 seconds. And that was just for me. But my brother saw it and he said, he said, why don't you do a coaching book? And I I'd never thought I, I wasn't writing it to do a book. I was writing it to save time. And he said, Rob, he said, you know, and gradually I first I said, oh, I can't bother to do that. And then I did. I started to section them. I was kind of like, well, they're all the passing ones. They're all the shooting ones. And then it started to, you know, snowball from there. I started to sort of grade them, beginner, intermediate, advanced, you know. Um, and it, and it, it went from there. It just started kind of organic. And then it became more formal. It became more formalized. Then I started to take it seriously. And then I started looking for publishers. I contacted a few. And I was very lucky that a, a publisher called Mayer and Mayer, we do textbooks, a real, they're a real sort of giant sports project. They got back to me and said, that's exactly what we want for us for a coaching book next next year. And then it was really a case of getting your skates on and meeting the deadline. So yeah, it's kind of a cold, pretty much every activity I've ever used. I think since then, I've probably got about another hundred or so. But, you know, <laughs> the second book there, time, look, hold on to that. Yeah, so there you go. <laughs> okay, yeah. uh, and Rob, how are they packaged? I mean, is it just sessions? And when I say just sessions, I don't mean that's not like not just sessions, but do, do you look at um, sessions only, or is it is it positioned around kind of an approach to coaching more broadly, or is it literally these are sessions you can do based on different elements of the game? Okay, well, it's I mean it's it's two hundred and fifty two activities. When I say activities, some people call them drills or whatever, but it's two hundred and two hundred and fifty two. So what a, what a coach will get from buying the book is, I've looked at every main technique in football. You know, short passing, long passing, dribbling, running with the ball, volleys, uh, headers. I know headers are a bit taboo at the moment, but there is a, a safe heading section. Crossing. There's also a section on tactical play. So team shape, all the main um, tactical preoccupations of coach. Or how do we press? How do we set a low block? How do we defend in wide areas? How do we attack in central areas? There's also a small fitness development section. And there's also a warm-up section. So for every technique, the coach will get about 20 activities. So there'll be 20 long passing, 20 short passing, uh, 15 volley, uh, 10 dribbling. So there's, you know, and I say 250 is, is a lifetime of, <laughs> of, new, is an, yeah. of, of new ideas. Uh, so so they're, getting, they're getting that. And they're, they're very adaptable. A lot of people, when they approach me about buying the book, they say, yeah, but Who's it for? And I'm obviously I'm bound to say it's for every coach, but but it is because they're graded. So if you've say got 20 long passing exercises in the long passing section, seven or eight of them are basic, uh, five or six are intermediate, five or six are advanced. 
And, you know, again, and then with, with coaching knowledge and people buying this book, some will be very advanced academy level coaches, professional coaches. You might look at it and think, oh, well, I'm not going to use a basic one, but you can use the basic ones because every activity is then progressed and there's adaptations. So, you know, you could have two or three people playing keep ball. It looks basic, but obviously the players doing it are going to be at a higher level and the adaptations and the progressions will gradually make it more challenging. You know, and, and by the same token, if you are a grassroots coach, you would use all of the basic and intermediate ones. So you've got 15 short passing ones. You've got 15 dribbling ones. So it's meant to be for all coaches. And that's because I've coached at all levels. I've coached, you know, for professional clubs. I've coached non-league clubs. I've coached toddlers. It's everything I've ever done. And anyone who picks up the book, I'm sure, will come out with over 100 minimum new new, new ideas. And some people who are completely new to coaching will have We'll have 200, you know, 252. So it's a lot. Um, it's a lot. And hopefully it's you know, good value for money, I would say. So for coaches, you could mm. pretty much, uh, beginner coaches and more experienced coaches is going to work for them. What about age groups of players? And I appreciate you've got the various levels there. But when you say a beginner's level, could, could you be doing it with under sevens, under eights, under nines? Would, would it work for those? Or is it, and across to, to any age group, would it work across all players as well? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's, um, you know, again, when I, I could look at it and say, you know, they're, they're graded in terms of difficulty, which might be, you know, basic, intermediate and advanced. But if you've got a group of six or seven year olds, even if they're very, very good players, you may not go straight to the advanced yeah. section. If you've got, a, you know, seven or eight year olds at the academy, you know, but I'm talking top level seven or eight year olds, you might use the advanced ones for them. Um, but, you know, if you've, if you've got, you know, less, less able you know, six or seven-year-olds, they'll be using the basic ones. But, you know, it's not a book for kids and it's not a book for adults. It's not a book for elite. It's not a book for grass. I honestly think it sort of bridges the gap from you can use it in, you know, a soccer camp, grassroots. You can use it in a PE department if you want to teach a scheme of work. You can use it for pre, uh, pre-academy players and academy players. You can use it in non-league football. And that's why also, for, for some people who are, want to sort of use it for more adult advice, there's like a 25 activity um, tactical set, you know, section, as I said, which is there's, you know, it will teach you how to press. One activity will teach you how to, um, you know, create opportunities around the box. Some will teach you how to play one touch attacking football. So, yeah, I mean, it is, it's, um, it is a toolkit. It's adaptable, very adaptable. And Rob, you said um, like it's practice activities, maybe even drills. Is it game-based stuff or is it more kind of traditional practices? How would you describe kind of the setups or do they vary depending on what you, what you do, what, what exercise it is? Yeah, no, that's, uh, again, that's one of the other points I wanted to make it, Scott, with, with, the, with the activities. Um, the, in the book, I've, I've put for each activity, there's a diagram. Uh, there's the amount of equipment you use, you should use, the type of equipment, a suitable number of players. Now that you coaches can't hand pick, as you know. So I want 12 players. Yeah. You might have 25, but you know I suggest a, an ideal number. It might be 14, it might be eight, whatever it is. There is a there are three coaching focus for every activity. So the primary focus for one might be dribbling, but you know I would argue that any coaching activity 
there's branch offs. So you might be mainly dribbling, but at some stage, the kids are going to need to pass. So the secondary focus would be, you know, dribbling into short passing. The third one might be turn, because if you can't dribble forwards, you've got to turn, turn off. So everyone has, has, has three uh, coaching focus. There's two or three progressions or adaptations. But I think the point you, the point you, you sort of invited me to make there was I've said each one, there's a, there's a type of activity. So each activity is either an unopposed technical practice. So, for example, that might be, you know, if you're trying to develop long passing, you know, or long passing with the outside of your foot, that's difficult. Yeah. You know, and so you might do that simply in a group of two or three, where you're just literally just pinging balls to each other. Now, technically, that might be frowned upon now, which is, oh, you don't do paired activities. You know, most of them are not like, but, you know, that would be an unopposed technical practice. An opposed technical practice would be, well, they've learned the technique. Now we're going to try and do long passing, where every touch before the long pass is pressurized. So some activities are opposed, some are unopposed. And then we've also got, um, we've got a small-sided games activities. So, you know, sometimes you, the teaching might be done within a five-a-side or an eight-a-side or a nine-v-seven. There's also kind of what you might call a, like a phase of play which is a, a recreation of a certain aspect of a match. If you're working on crossing with 20 players, you know, that was what you might call like, um, you know, a phase of play. And there's also, you know, and so there's different sections. So when, if a coach is thinking, yeah, but I want to coach crossing, but I don't want kids just practicing the technique. I want them to be crossing within a match activity. They'll find that activity yeah, in the book. So it's done, it's designed so that you can do it you know, more simply, two players just practicing the technique together, a small group of two or four, you can do it as a 2v2. So it's, it, it's, it opens up and all of the activities, the coach will find what they want or the way they want to coach the activity. I had that in mind when I wrote the book a lot. How did you find writing the book, Rob? And did it make you reflect back on the practices and make many changes to it? Did you, I guess because you've got to look at a closer eye. Now, it's one thing doing it for you in your sessions, right? And having it there in your notes, but suddenly we're going to put it in a public platform, in, in a public forum. Did, did you look at it and refine and change a lot of stuff or, or did you have it pretty much right from the beginning? I, I've got to say, Scott, honestly, it, I mean, it, it's been the biggest, the biggest amount of work I've, I've ever done. And that includes my degree, <laughs> my dissertation, uh, my my PE teacher training year. I, as I said, I started seven seven years ago. Yeah. Um, and obviously, I haven't. You know, for the first two or three years, where I was kind of doing bits and pieces, I wasn't sat there every single every single night. But for the last four years, I would say pretty much every day or every other day after work, when the last thing you want to do is go home yeah. and do more work, <laughs> I was doing one or two hours every night for about three years. And so I don't know how many tens of thousands of hours. I mean, honestly, it was. And I think when, you're, when, when it's something you really care about, and even if you're quite a meticulous planner, it gets to the point where you can almost get a bit neurotic, where I just didn't want to let go of it. The publishers were sort of saying, oh, Rob, just give us the first 200 pages. And I was checking every full stop, every comma, every, you know. And, and it's also, but it's, the thing is, when you're, if you wrote a novel, for example, I guess you can put the main idea out there and the publishers will go. But what you've got to realize when you're writing a textbook, you are the architect of all of it. If it doesn't make sense, how is the publisher going to under, you've got, they've got to be able to visualize. So you've got to be so precise, which is this player must stand 
on this area of the pitch. You know, yes. three supporting players must be five yards diagonally. Left. You know, in the end, my head was like, God, I just want to sort of, yeah. I want to finish this. But but the thing that made it even more difficult, Scott, was, you know, my, my fiance Zara, she's an illustrator. And she, you know, had the idea. She said, oh, why don't I do the diagrams? And I think to this day, she regrets it. You know, she's still your was, fiance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well done. Yeah, still, still ama- amazing. But she, she got on board. And if you see the book, the diagrams, they are, they are you know, bounces, they are, they are brilliantly done because she doesn't follow football. Yeah. So I, you know, but when she said it, I thought, oh, that's great. But then suddenly I realized, oh, man, a whole bunch of work there. Yeah. I've got to sit down and explain what this player is doing. And there were some nights, you know, it was five o'clock in the morning. You know, I've been going from six o'clock at night till five o'clock in the morning, near the end of the deadline. Um, and it was, it was, yeah, it was a huge amount of work. But I'm so happy with the, with the final product. So, so happy with it. And, yeah, well, well done, Rob. Because I, I look when I speak to guys that have done this, it's the same thing. It's always a bigger bit of work than they expect, but you know, it becomes their baby and their thing. And and, and I'm sure with this is the same with you. This is you know, you put it out there, and it's kind of a bit of you, isn't it? Really going out in in, yeah. in the big world. Is, so, yeah, yeah. um, it, it went out in January, I believe. How how is, is it? January it went out? Has it has it been out for? A- well, I mean, again, Scott, with the um, with various things, COVID, Brexit, lorry driver strikes. You know, the publishers are kind of like Rob. You couldn't be publishing a book at a worse time yeah <laughs> because you know the amount of delays it was meant to be in bookshops i think probably about five months ago it is about to go into into bookshops so it will be in waterstones wh smiths anyone who's listening to america in america i think there's a, a big bookshop called barnes and noble but it's it's going to be in all bookshops all good bookshops um around the world very very soon but okay. it's it's been people have been buying it online, and it's now being delivered to people's houses within twenty four hours for about four weeks. Yeah. Um, so you can get it on Amazon, you can get it on Waterstones website. Um, so yeah, lots and lots of people I think have been buying. I'm so curious to know. I mean, to be honest, it's probably my mum's just bought it. She's <laughs> up all these social media things about it, you know, it's pro- probably that, but. Well, yeah, anyone who wants to can can look on on the internet, soccer coaches talk, and you'll find it. All, all there's so many links to it, so many to get it from. We'll, we'll put the link in the show notes to the book on Amazon, so people can can Thank find you. it. Uh, yeah. But I, I wonder then, Robert, has it affected your coaching? I mean, how, do you feel going through that process have you improved as a coach? Is it like, and obviously these are your practices in the first point anyway, but having revisited, having to fine tune them, and you're going out and doing the work at Chelsea or wherever else. Do, do you find that you're a bit sharper now because you've gone through this process? I think it's just made me feel a little bit more uh, confident. I, I don't think, it's almost like the two things are different. Like when you're a coach, you're coaching, but the book was almost like a, it's like an academic. Yeah. Pursuit. And it was, you know, when I was sitting there, you know, nodding off and, you know, trying, I didn't feel like a coach. I felt like, um, I felt like a, a writer. Obviously I was writing a coaching textbook, but I think, it's really sharpened up again that focus on um, org- organization. Yeah. You know, it made me realize like how much goes into what a coach does. You know, because I was actually sort of thinking, well, how many cones do I need for this? And I know when you do a session, you're not necessarily counting how many cones and how many bibs you've got. So, but it really did make me sort of focus again on 
if you set it up well, if the setup's right and you know how to manage it, it does make your job easier. Because if yes. you set it up wrong and you've got to start again and explain again. So it did um it did a lot, it did a lot for that. And I think it's given me it's just given me a, a bit of a feeling of confidence, which is it's a bit surreal sometimes, you know, when I see the book. Yeah, because it, it, for so long it was on a lap, and I saw it on my coffee table. It's kind of like I did that. Yeah, yeah. But the weirdest thing, Scott, just a, a quick one. When I did the soccer schools last week, Chelsea, I did the same old thing. What did I do? I sat down with a scrap yeah. of paper, <laughs> folded up at the bottom. I didn't look at my book once. We're creatures of was... habit, aren't we? Yes, the problem you got <laughs> there. You see, it, don't it, say it on yeah, the podcast. It... You got to say the no, book. No, 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 no. Once, once, obviously, yeah. once you've never looked at. Uh, but uh, that's another. for the next book now, right? Yeah, that's the next one. Well, I think that's brilliant. Look, well, look, well done for getting it together. I I haven't got it, Rob, but I'm going to be getting it 100%. Oh, yeah. uh, I think, it, you know, it's, for me, coaches that have been out there, done it for years, been around, that stuff just is, is great to have. What I've learned over time is get these books, look at them, and then make it work for you, right? So you pick out the yeah, things exactly. that work and you adapt it. We do exactly. these things. It gives you great ideas. And if you troll the internet and go for YouTube, there's just too much stuff out there. So there finding is. quality books that, you know, you, you can trust the source where it's come from, then um, I'm looking forward to getting Rob and, and working through it. Um, if you don't mind me asking, and just the Chelsea side of things and, and the, the foundation phase coaching then, um, mm. how do you approach that with regards to your sessions and stuff like that? What, what would a session look like then? I, I know coaches, we've got coaches all across the, the world that listen to the podcast and they have different ways, different times with their kids and their different backgrounds. But just what, how would you see like an effective structure for a session, if, if that's okay to ask? Yeah, no, um, I'd say, I mean, at, at Chelsea, the, the typical session is 90 minutes. Um, so, so it would be an hour and a half session. I'm sure that varies from club to club and academy to academy and so on. But, you know, if you're using 90 minutes, you know, I, I jotted this down. A typical sort of template for me, the first 10 or 15 minutes will be sort of part one of a warm-up. Now, you know, not if you're lucky to enough, enough to have a ball for each player, brilliant. Um, if not, you can hopefully share footballs. But I do 10 or 15 minutes. I'm a huge fan of uh, curver coaching. So I'm sure a lot of it's so C-O-E-R-V-R, curver coaching, especially for the, for the younger ones. Because if you do 10 or 15 minutes of that kind of stuff, they're probably getting eight, 800, 900 touches in 15 minutes. It gets their minds tuned in. It gets their feet moving fast. They pick up so much ball manipulation and, and dribbling skills. And, you know, co- coaches are great, you know, different little combinations, double step over, you know, drag back, you know, inside right. For, you know, I, I do 10 or 15 minutes of that always but in every session. Um, and then I go on to the sort of second part of the warm up. Some people kind of say, oh, God, there's Rob still warming up, you know. But it's, when I say, it's, you know, it, it's all straight away. It's not just going for a jog and stretching your hamstring. The second part is competitive. I'll try and make it 1v1. I'll mark out small grids and the kids will play 30-second 1v1 possession games where they're shielding, uh, trying to keep the ball inside an area. They'll get a point. You know, whoever's got the ball at the end of the 30 seconds gets a point. Find another part. So they go, they're, they, they're practicing dribbling. They're practicing uh, closing down when they haven't got the ball. And also, I think competitiveness. You know, when they're young, you know, physical contact can be daunting. 1v1 teaches it in a, in a safe way. 
you're going to get bumped a little bit. You're going to fall over a little bit. You're going to have to shield the ball. But I really like another 15 minutes where it's just against a partner, you know, 1v1, under pressure. So that's the first half hour. And then depending on what the, the club curriculum is, if it's kind of, you know, let's say a more simple um, technical focus, say it's um, passing and receiving. If you're working with pre foundation players, you might want to well just work on the technique of receiving and passing. But if it's something I believe they're quite competent at, it will immediately be under pressure. So it'll be an opposed technical practice. So, you know, I'm not just going to have them practicing passing and receiving without any pressure. It will be 3v1 or even a 2v2, you know, a little small-sided game. If it's a more difficult starting point, say, for example, we're looking at crossing or, or finishing in the final third, I will spend that, that unopposed because they're the kind of techniques that if you don't learn them very well, the moment you put pressure on them, you need down. to go back to the start anyway. So, so I'd look at it in two ways. And for both of them, if it was a, a, a more um, difficult starting technique, I'd spend about 20 minutes just refining the technique. So I say it's finishing. I'll give them, you know, 20 minutes of a finishing drill. Yeah. Then I would take that for the next 20 minutes where the, you know, the finishing drill might be the same but it will be under a lot of pressure. It will be, you know, with two or three defenders and maybe one extra attacker. So you've always got a slight overload, um, but then, then they're doing it in a, in a, in a, um, under pressure. And then the final 20, 25 minutes, sometimes, you know, I will say just play. Because, you know, if you're only seeing them once a week, there are times where you sort of think, you look, I guess you assess the group. If they look mentally gone, there's no point yeah. in too much more. You've got, but sometimes if they're really into the technique, and when it's someone like finishing, they're so into that. When you go into the game, you can still, if it's a 3v3 or 4v4, you can still be going back in and coaching yeah. the finishing. Hold on, hang on, just there. You could have done this, you could have, you could have done that. So it's a two-part warm-up, um, a, a technical focus, either opposed or unopposed. I'll progress that that technical focus, and then I'll finish off in a small-sided game. That's that's a typical kind of uh, session I would use. Brilliant, Rob. Uh, with regards to kind of the environment and the culture then, do you have kind of values or philosophy that the players are aware of, or is, or is that just driven by the way you conduct your sessions, you know, by your body language and the words you use and how you carry yourself? Because I think that's absolutely fine for coaches if it is, but personally, um, or, or is it more kind of prescriptive? Do you, do you have values that the boys or the, or the girls understand that's important with these sessions? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess that kind of goes back to, uh, you know, the first, the opening question, which was about the coaching philosophy. Yeah. Um, I think, I, I think sometimes, Scott, it's like when, I guess when we were at school, uh, when I was at school, I went to a boys' school. The football team was quite good. But we had, we had one boy at Arsenal and we had one boy at Tottenham. Now, they were YTS players and they were definitely the best players in the game. I mean, definitely, you know, better than I was. Um, really good players. And I think now, with the onset of development centres and advanced development centres and, you know, individuals setting up their own academy, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with, with any of this, but what it does sometimes, I think there's a danger that unless the coach really educates the player about the opportunity they're getting and the pathway that they're on, I think sometimes kids maybe are not quite as motivated 
as you would have thought they'd be. Like, you know, if somebody had said, as an eight-year-old, Rob, you're going to train with Arsenal. I mean, I would have been, I, I don't think I could have, I would have, I think I'd be able to speak if a coach spoke yeah. to me. Whereas I think now there are so many more opportunities, even when kids maybe come into like an academy club development, a professional club development centre. I really make a point of saying, you know, you do realise how big this club is. You do realise that you have been invited because you've got talent, but, you know, you, you're in a privileged position. So whilst you're here, I want you to think of yourself as part of the club and everything the club would want you to do. You know, I, I expect you I expect you to be doing that, which is when a coach talks to you, you know, they're working for a, for a club of, you know, and they're highly qualified coaches. And I just really give them the feeling that they've been selected because they're talented, but they must take it as, um, as, a, as a real privilege. And I sometimes wonder, you know, because when you see a lot of people today, you, sort of, you go into a school and you say, has anyone here played for a professional club? And that 40 hands shoot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you think, Hang on, you know, and I sometimes think maybe if if it was clearly illustrated a bit better, which is what stage you're at, and there's nothing, you know, just because you're at a development, it doesn't mean oh that's not the real club. I don't like I don't like that because it is a pathway, but the pathway each stage needs to be treated with respect, and if you're good enough, yeah. you'll move on to the next stage. So I do a lot of work on on you know on educating the player about where they are. Yeah, but what they need to do to reach uh, the next level of expectations. Yeah, well, that's important, I think, because the aspiration, right, and understanding it. And, you know, you don't want to put pressure on the player, especially the younger ones, but they, sh- they should mm. recognise it's an opportunity. And, you know, and, and absolutely, yeah. Yeah. You know, that it's a privileged opportunity for them and others want to have that too. So I think that, you know, done the right way, that's exactly how it should be. And I ask the question because I'm not sure we always do that. I think sometimes the sessions can be fantastic, but there's the other side of the sessions, aren't there? The environment, and the culture, and things that go around it that can be as important for the, for the player's development. And if we miss that, we're missing a chunk of, of the educational opportunity you know but um that's not the case here so that's fantastic rob i'm so grateful for your time um i've got one more question that's okay because yeah. i'm near taking a whole hour of your time um we ask all our guests this and you may have mentioned it already but, but maybe not if there was one thing you could change about um the world of coaching what might that be um <laughs> one thing well can i start with one phrase <laughs> brilliant i love it yes you may Go is on, it, yeah. this isn't just coaches i don't know i'm sure everyone's gonna maybe chuckle at is it to do with illustration books? <laughs> no, no it's, not, it's not to do with that. It's to do with um, the use of the phrase in and around. In and around. Okay. So, you know, it's like, I mean, this is partly jokeful, but I'm sure you've noticed it. Pundits, every time you turn on the radio, they need to get the ball in and around the big man. And I sort of think about, have you thought literally what you just said? They need to get the ball in him. <laughs> they need to get players in and around him. It's like, what, you want three or four surgically implanted into him. This is great news. Liverpool lost tonight. It's great news for the players in and around Liverpool. It's like, well, what teams are in Liverpool? So, no, no, that's just, that's just something that makes me pull my, my remaining hair out. That, just, that was just makes me chuckle how often people use that. But it's well, Rob, you know what? I had never noticed it before, but you've ruined it now because every time that comes up now, we're going to be doing the same thing. And we're yeah, going to be like, oh, yeah, let's yeah. just stop saying that. It's, it's a great point. Yeah, totally get it. Uh, and you, we do hear it a lot, don't we? And it is a, a bit of a pointless phrase, yeah. <laughs> um, but beyond that, yeah. beyond that, yeah. Now, what I'd say is it kind of going on from development centres. Um, I think it's, uh, I'd like to change sort of unrealistic targets put on 
put on the coaches, put on the clubs and, and put on the players. Because you know, as I say, if you go back to what I was saying earlier, you know, when I was a, a boys school, there's 150 boys in my year, 200 London, which is obviously a football hotbed. Two of them were at professional clubs. And as far as I know, um, one of them went on to play in what would have been the old Division 4. Now, that's some achievement. It's an incredible achievement. But that is still, there are still, in my, to my knowledge, the amount of uh, chance, the amount of the chance or percentage chance is still the same. You know, squads might be slightly bigger, but realistically, the chances of, you know, however many boys progressing, however many girls progressing, there's still amount, the same amount of professional football teams. Still the same amount of players. So statistically, you have to be exceptional. You have to be exceptional to because now, because what's even more difficult is clubs pick from all over the world. They can pick the best Brazilian boy or girl, the best Chinese boy or girl. But what there seems to be is there's more of an expectation that there's an opportunity for all of them to be professionals. Now, there is an opportunity. Of course, there's an opportunity, and that's great. But in terms of numbers it's still the same equation and yet it seems to be a pressure which is like how many players did the coach get onto the next level well that's not always a direct result of the coach yeah that's also to do with ability and you know it's it's i just sometimes think it would be clearer for parents players and coaches if clubs maybe did a little bit more about and this is not to you know dampen someone's ambition it's not at all it's to educate and to to light the fire which is no 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 you have to be at this standard so go for it because it's so difficult to do but I sometimes think people muddle through it and coaches are sometimes a little bit unsure of how they're meant to turn so many players into professionals because same amount of teams same amount of players but I just think more people enter the system but you're still getting the same numbers coming out and I just think it would be a really good for everyone to really think about, you know, what, why that pressure, what that says about society, which is everyone must be a star. Everyone must make it. And it's like, and I know football's so popular, but it's like, but not everyone can. And the whole point of sport is, to some degree, it is elitist. I think people are ashamed of that word. I'm not talking about privilege, but performers are at the top of their yeah. at the top of their profession. And that's to do with ability. Sometimes it is to do with opportunity and financial, you know, constraints, um, which I don't like. And I would, I think, you know, obviously society tries to do as much as possible to level that off. But ultimately, you, if, if you support Arsenal, Chelsea, Man City, Tottenham, or whoever it is, whoever it is, you still expect the best players to be playing in the first team. And if people were getting through who weren't good enough, the fans would quickly turn around and say, well, what coach brought that person through? And at the same time, coaches are supposedly trying to be developing more players. I just find it a little bit sort of like, I don't know, it's hard to balance both, I think. It's a good point you make just from the numbers, because even if you said, OK, if we could fill every squad you know, in professional football with academy graduates, you know, 
we, there's still more there's still more academy players to come through the system. There are places like ten times over. So you know, even in the best possible dream scenario, it's still there's, there's still going to be much more supply than there is availability, right? And 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 I guess part of that is making sure that the programs are developing players, personality, and characteristics, right? As much as the life skill stuff, as much as the football. So you know, it's not all about just becoming a professional player, but it's, it's other stuff as well. But we could certainly do a good job in. Or maybe even a better job in in getting that message across. And I see even the younger players, seven, eight, nine year olds, that you know they're they're going to be professional football players. And you think, well, there's literally you've got no chance of knowing that at this age. Literally no yeah. chance. No, you know, no chance. It's um it's very much crystal ball stuff. Rob, you've been superb. Thank you so much. I really do appreciate you. I wish my luck with your yeah, time. I'm keen to know what your plans are going forward. Obviously, you're doing the teaching. You've written the book. Obviously, book number two is only around the corner. I'm sure. <laughs> no pressure. Um, yeah. No. 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 <laughs> what is your plans I, I think i think with my coaching uh, I'm, i think i'm coming to the end of my PE teaching career i'm doing three days a week here at the moment um but i think the book has, has pushed the transition to i don't really think i want to be involved in PE teaching too much longer i see coaching now as where i want to be and i've always had a desire um to go abroad with it i've always been very interested in you know some of the university stuff in in america the standard of it is so so good and i'd like it to be part of you know a, a life experience i'd like to go to a new culture i'd like to coach in a new culture as part of, of you know a movement in my life and you know there, there are many countries that interest me i think that's really where i'd like to be in a couple of years a couple of years time i'd like to be i think overseas uh, and able to coach you know full-time have a team have a university team and also carry on, carry on with the books because I know I'm, I'm kind of moaning about it, but I really love it now. I really sort of have ideas for new books. If I could be coaching and doing books, I think I'd be pretty content with that. So that that would be nice. But you never know. You oh, never I, know. Who knows? I, I'm sure wherever you end up, you're going to be a massive asset to an organisation you're part of. Um, I know that working in schools is challenging and, 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 a, and a tough slog, so well done for doing it. Um, but I think, you know, you, when your heart lies somewhere else, maybe you chase those dreams down and it works out. Um, Rob, you've got a great history behind what you've done. You're doing some great stuff now, and I'm looking forward to hearing what you do moving forward because I'm sure it's going to be wonderful and successful. Would you happily come back on and, and share your progress maybe in a, in a year or so's time and let us know what, what you're doing? I'd love to, Scott. I'd really, I really Really, I really enjoyed it. And when I saw your questions yesterday, as ever, you know, I started writing notes on <laughs> what I was going to say. But, uh, you know, but the time, the time's flown by and it's been really great questions. Uh, really enjoyed the interview. Um, I was just wondering, Scott, if I could just, if I could just say, um, you know, if any coaches are listening, um, up until about six months ago, I'd, I'd literally never used social media. I honestly never used it. I now have a Twitter account, which is purely about, coaching and my book i'm not going to be you know sending distasteful jokes or you know <laughs> photos of me and my cat it's not it's not any of that stuff what's the point then but if if anyone if any coaches are interested in the book on or, or also if they just want to talk at all about coaching on any coaching matters any advice or anything i can learn from them if i could give my twitter handle i think is the right is the right one i'd be delighted uh, i've met so many interesting people including yourself that was via 
yeah. via Twitter. Uh, it's been so, so interesting, especially for someone who's a bit of a techno, technophobe, I think is the right <laughs> phrase. But anyway, it is, um, it's at Rob underscore coach 82. So at Rob underscore coach 82. And I've also said for my fiance, Zara, she is um, a fantastic illustrator for so if anyone else out there is doing a book and is thinking what am i going to do about the diagrams what am i going to do about this i'm bound to say this but if you look at the book they are all done by her and she is obviously more than willing to to help and you can contact her at at ba underscore zara z-a-r-a so you know that is for anyone who has any perhaps in queries about I don't know, the, the illustrative side of coaching books. It's not just football. If there's any other coaches out there listening, uh, I think you could do a lot worse than contact her um, about it. I'm lucky enough to you know, not have to, but <laughs> you know, I, did, I did say I, I'd do that. Otherwise, I'd get in a lot of, Rob, a lot honestly, of trouble. So I hope you don't mind being that Not one, not one, not at all. And what I'll do is we'll put both the um, Twitter handles in the show notes as well. So people who haven't got them written down, they can click on there and find you straight away. Y- yeah, we, we reach out through Twitter. It is a great medium for this. I think it's a great platform. Like social media has its, you know, its, its, its other side to it. But I think if you're looking to network and, and find good people, and it's amazing how people do say yes straight away, you know, and get involved. And um, we've had some great is, high yeah. profile guests on here and, and you've been fantastic to jump on it and do this for us today, Rob. So thanks so much for your time. Much appreciated. Um, hopefully we can chat and have a coffee soon, but certainly get you back on the podcast, you know, at some point when even when book two comes out or you're, or you're off to the States, wherever else you can let us know what you're doing as soon as that next adventure starts, if that's all right. Cheers, Scott. I look forward to that, mate. Stay well. Thanks, Rob. Cheers, Scott. This episode was brought to you in association with our friends at Soccer Coach Weekly. Established since 2006, Soccer Coach Weekly is a leading source of inspiration and advice for all grassroots coaches. Join thousands of youth soccer coaches just like you, saving time and effort in their goal of having the most effective, enjoyable and successful coaching journey for them and their players. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode.